Pastor and author David Paul Tripp writes that contentment celebrates grace. The contented heart is satisfied with the giver and is therefore freed from craving the next gift. Friend, does this describe you this morning? Are you free from craving the next gift in life? Are you free from craving the things of the world? Dr. Tripp goes on to write that greed causes us to look horizontally for what can only ever be found vertically. So we look to creation for life, hope, peace, rest, contentment, identity, meaning, and purpose, inner peace, and motivation to continue. He goes on to say the problem is not that nothing in creation can give us these things, but that creation was never designed to satisfy your heart. Creation was made to be one big finger pointing, to, pointing you to the one who alone could satisfy your heart. To learn contentment is to learn to be satisfied in what God has given you in life. Contentment doesn't mean that you're poor. Rich can be content and poor can be content. To be content doesn't mean that you go without the best basic necessities of life, but that you find that whatever you have is enough. That you're satisfied not in what your hands hold or what your wallet can contain, but you're satisfied in the one who has given you those things. Contentment is, as Tripp says, a celebration of God's evident grace in your life. As we heard from uh, Pastor Rod earlier, James, uh, uh, the Apostle James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light, from whom there is no change no shifting shadow due to change. In other words, as the shadows change, as the seasons change, uh, that's not like God. God doesn't change. He, he will forever be a good gift giver. And uh, we recognize this morning that everything we have is from God. God is the one who has given us everything. And so we seek to be satisfied in God alone. And the Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy, in writing to the church in Ephesus because they were faced with a, a false teaching that taught them to be satisfied in the things of this earth. Now, just to remind you, Paul has just concluded a sec section of the letter where he was addressing various groups within the faith family. He began there at the beginning of chapter 5 by, by saying, look, young Timothy, you need to love everyone as family. You ought to treat the older members as moms and dads and the, 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 the contemporary members, those the same age as brothers and sisters. He called on Timothy to be uh, an example to the flock by honoring everyone in the, in the faith family. And here he shifts, Paul shifts his attention back to the false teachers. Now, you'll remember a number of weeks ago, um, at the beginning of the letter, Paul dealt with the false teachers um, seeking to teach contrary to the law. They were perverting the law. They were creating a, a, a kind of works righteousness uh, around the law. Then he dealt with, secondly, in the letter, uh, this false teaching on asceticism. Asceticism is the belief that you can... Um, uh, somehow grow holy by going without, right? So, so, so for example, uh, you might, oh, I, I, I don't listen to that kind of music because I am godly. Or I, I don't do those kind of things because I am godly. And so asceticism is going without in order to be more holy. And Paul says, no, the gospel creates holiness, uh, not by asceticism. And here at the end of this letter, Paul again brings up the false teachers to deal with the third issue that was going on in the life of the church, which really centers around the desire for riches. 
Uh, these false teachers were tur turning religion into a means of gain. Now, you'll, if you know anything about the historic context going on there in Ephesus, uh, this is where one of the ancient seven wonders of the world is. There in Ephesus, this, this uh, grand temple to the uh, goddess uh, Diana. And, and there they would go and worship. And you'll remember, if you know uh, the book of Acts at all, uh, Paul dealt with uh, uh, some silversmiths there in town. He was run out of town uh, because Paul was, was kind of uh, coming into to town and, and running off all the idol worship. And, of course, those who were in the business of making idols were a little frustrated with Paul because they, they saw the bottom line was shrinking uh, because people were coming to know Jesus. And so there's always been there in Ephesus this vein of prosperity gospel, that religion is a means of material gain. And, and so what would have been kind of a prototypical uh, maybe prosperity, name it and claim it, uh, get rich on God kind of scheme, um, Paul here says, no, no, no. Uh, we need to not be concerned about riches here on earth, but riches in eternity. And so Paul here in this latter chapter really contrasts, again, as he did earlier, and this is what he's trying to do with young Timothy, is he says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there and be a contrasting image of these false teachers. I want you to go down there and teach what is right and live what is right. And that the congregation will see wrong from right by your right living. And that's what he does here in chapter 6. He first, in these first few verses that we're going to consider this week, he, he kind of paints the picture of the false teacher. He defines what they're all about. He, he describes them. And then next week we'll see that kind of contrasting picture of uh, young Timothy uh, and what a godly teacher looks like. And so we're going to consider this morning these false teachers. And we'll see a warning that Paul gives to the congregation, and particularly those who are uh, poor in the congregation, uh, that they need to be content and not be taken in by these false teachers and their desire for riches. Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you've not done so already. And we're going to be considering here verses 2 through 10. Now, um, before I get reading here, you'll notice that in your, uh, if you have an ESV Bible um, or any other contemporary evangelical Bible, uh, you'll see that, that verse 2 is kind of split between that previous section and the section we're going to consider this morning. So most scholars think that, you know, there should have been the verse break should have been right there at teach and urge these things. And so we're going to, that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's among people rather who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul writes to guard these Christians against the temptation to gain material riches. Paul writes and says, Christians, you need to guard yourself against the temptation to gain material riches by learning to be content with the basic possessions and striving for the greater and eternal value of godliness. Uh, Paul says the way you fight against this false teaching, Timothy, is by teaching the church to be content. 
And one of the ways you and I can guard ourselves against the temptation of prosperity preachers and the temptation to get rich in this life only is by learning contentment, by learning to be content with what God has had and see the greater value of godliness over and against material possessions. Paul says you ought to get rich, but you ought to get rich in the next life and not this life. And so he begins by providing us something, I believe, to avoid and then something to pursue. He warns us, he says, avoid this, but pursue that. Avoid false teaching, but pursue, pursue rather godliness. And so Paul here says that, that Christians shouldn't seek to get rich on religion. He says, look, we ought to avoid the temptation to get rich on religion. Now, you might think this morning, I, how does one get rich on religion? A friend, if you've been around church a while, you'll know, or if you've uh, turned on your TV and ever watched one of those TV preachers, you'll see that there are many people who get rich on religion. Uh, there is a whole host of, of preachers all throughout Asia and Africa seeking to get rich on religion. So we ought not to do that. And then we'll see, secondly, that conversely, we should seek rather to get rich eternally through godliness. So these are the two points I want us to consider this morning. First, we ought not to get rich on religion. Look here what Paul says. He commands Timothy, he transitions here back to the kind of heart of the matter, and he says, I want you to teach and urge these things. What is Paul referring to? Well, I think Paul here in this letter is pointing back and he's pointing forward. He says, listen, Timothy, you are a teacher. This is what you are. This is fundamentally what a pastor is. A pastor is a teacher. That's what he does. He teaches and he urges. You'll hear Pastor Rod and often in our, uh, our definition of what uh, preaching is, preaching, or what we define as expositional preaching, is taking the point of the passage and making that the point of the sermon, but we don't stop there. We apply it. And right here, you see a good definition, is to teach and to urge. To urge is to apply, to exhort, to command, right? So biblical preaching includes both teaching content, so we're delivering content to you, but also, secondly, urging, commanding, right? And so we believe uh, uh, both down. And so Paul here reminds Timothy, this is what you ought to do. You ought to, do, you ought to teach and to command, to urge. Well, what is he to teach and urge? Well, here it is, verses 3 and 5. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by saying that right doctrine must be defended. In other words, the teaching ministry of the pastorate is to be one of not only rightly teaching, but also confronting those who teach wrongly. Timothy should be consistently teaching, Paul says, right doctrine. And those right doctrine are not to be delivered down from Timothy. He's not to create them himself, but rather, notice what he says, that does not agree with what? To agree with the teachings of Paul? The teachings of Peter? Not at all. With the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The apostles' teaching is the authoritative teaching an explanation of Jesus's teaching. The apostles aren't teaching anything that Jesus himself didn't teach them to teach. And so fundamentally, if we were to say, well, what do we believe as a church? Do, do we follow Paul? Do we follow Apollos? Do we follow Peter? No, we follow Jesus. And that the apostles are merely expounding on Jesus's teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so often you'll hear me introduce and say, you know, when you when we read this passage this morning, hear it in the words of Jesus this morning. This is Jesus's word for you this morning. So if you got one of those red letter Bibles, you could say, hey, all these I got cheated. All of the letters should have been read. Every letter in your Bible, if you got one of those red letters, should be read. All of these words 
are Jesus's words. He spoke and he taught through the Holy Spirit to his apostles. And so uh, Timothy was to teach and stand upon the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he does here. Look again at verse three. Look what he says. He doesn't say the teachings of Jesus. He says the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is intentional. These aren't mere just names. These aren't throwaway names. These these are titles. These are offices. This is authority. The Lord Jesus Christ, the high and lifted up one, the one who Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The authority, the authoritative teaching of the word of God, the right doctrine must be defended by right preaching and teaching. Someone asked, how how do we defend against false teaching? We defend about it by teaching the truth. That's how we do it, by knowing the truth. Well, Paul goes on here by defining what he means by false teaching. He defines it here by saying that it is, verse 3, a different doctrine. A different doctrine. We are a doctrinal people. We believe propositional truth. Absolute truth. We don't come in and say, well, we kind of think this about Jesus. You know, we're not quite sure. We, We just are assuming a number of matters. Not at all. We are committed to the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, that that Jesus has laid down how we ought to behave and live and believe. We we ought to stand upon. And so there is a distinguish. We ought to know what is right and what is wrong. And he defines false teaching as that which is different, that is strange to the teachings of Christ. Every occult is based off of a lie about Jesus. We think about the two most notorious ones here in America, Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses. Both of them are cults that seek to distort the teachings and doctrines of Jesus. That's what they are. If you want to know whether or not a religion is Christian, we, we, what we do is we think about How do they teach about Jesus? This is why Paul goes on to say that it does not agree with what? The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, false doctrine does not agree with what Jesus taught. Now, what does Paul mean? The sound words of Jesus. Does does Paul merely mean the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Not at all. There were many things that Jesus taught that were not recorded in the Gospels. Well, the word sound is literally to mean healthy, that which brings life, that which brings health to one's body, sound doctrine. Uh, When Paul uses this language throughout the pastoral epistles, he's referring to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of redemption and reconciliation. In other words, the foundation, the foundational message, we are to take all that we believe about, about God, all the doctrine, we are to kind of boil it down. What's the foundational piece? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the gospel wrong, you get everything else wrong. You understand? You get one aspect of the gospel, you get substitutionary atonement wrong. You get everything else wrong. You get the authority of Christ, the deity of Christ wrong. Well, you, you get... You get Mormonism, right? That's everything boils down to the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You get Jesus wrong. We read this morning the Apostles' Creed. That creed is about the doctrine of Christ. We read about the Nicene Creed of 325 and the, 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 the Nicene Creed of 381. And we, we read these statements that are about the doctrine of Christ that the church historically has dealt with. They are different doctrines. Of the person and work of Christ. They are seeking to confront false teaching. But not only do they not agree with the sound words of Christ. That is the doctrine of the gospel. But notice here what he says. That they do not agree with teaching that promotes and produces godliness. Notice he says the teaching, verse 3, that accords with godliness. 
Literally, that which promotes and produces um, godliness. In other words, we, we say this often, that right doctrine leads to right living. You say, well, how, prove that to me. Well, if you look at the way the Apostle Paul writes these letters, he proves it to himself in a book like Ephesians. The first three chapters is right doctrine, and then the last three chapters is right living. He doesn't begin with right living, but he begins with right doctrine. Because, you see, you can't live right if you don't know who God is. You can't submit to a God whom you don't know, whom you don't see as Lord and Creator and authoritative in your life. And so, one of the ways Paul says, hey, this is how you can understand, this is how you can identify false teaching. Number one, it's strange. It's different. So you've ever sitting around a room and someone says, hey, you know, I got this idea the other night. I was reading my Bible and they come up with some idea that no one has ever heard, of, heard about in the last 2,000 years. You can say, oh, friend, I love you, but you are wrong. Well, how do you know I'm wrong? Because I know you're not, you're, you're not that smart. You're just, you're not that smart. You're telling me that in the last 2,000 years that no one's come up with this idea but you? Friend, you're not that smart. And neither are we. We stand on the shoulders of those who come about. It's the faith, faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's nothing new. Nothing new, brothers and sisters. We teach nothing new. Secondly, we saw there in that passage that not only was it Strange, but false teaching does not submit to the authoritative teaching of Christ. It, 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 it misses the mark of gospel. So this is why we make the gospel central. And then thirdly, here, it promotes and produces godliness. If doctrine that the church is teaching does not lead to the people to being more like Jesus, then it must be false doctrine. Friends, you see that? If we're not growing to be more and more like Jesus, then there is a breakdown in our doctrine, in our teaching. Well, Paul not only defines who the false teachers are, he describes them, doesn't he? Look here at verses 4 and 5 and how he describes them. Oh, friend, these words are just kind of piled up, aren't they? He says, again, it's sort of conditional. He has in mind, hey, imagine a false teacher. He says, well, all right, all right, all right, I got his teaching down, but what does he look like? How can I spot him out of the crowd? Well, here he is, verse 4. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. What a picture. He's puffed up with conceit. He thinks he knows it all, but Paul says he doesn't know a thing. He's puffed up with this knowledge. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Listen to those words. Look how he strings those together. An unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving. He has this desire, this craving, this for what? A desire for controversy. You ever, you ever met one like that? It's like, what's wrong with you? Why do you care so much about this? What, why is it that you're always trying to pick fights with people? You're always, you're always squabbling about this. There's this unhealthiness to it. You hear, you hear that? He's contrasting this healthy doctrine, the healthy words of Jesus. Look, Jesus dealt with controversy, didn't he? He dealt with the Pharisees. He dealt with the Sadducees. He, he wasn't afraid to deal with, with false teaching or, or, or sin. He dealt with it. But he didn't have this craving to just go in and blow people's lives up all the time. He goes on, and for quarrels, this unhealthy craving, not for only controversies, but he, this and sort of com, kind of puts them all together. So that word craving, all of these kind of hang off of that. For quarrels about words. They like to fight about words. Not only are they filled with conceit and empty on knowledge, but they love a good theological fight in the weeds. They like to fight about words. 
Oh, I believe in the rapture. I believe I'm an amillennialist. I'm a premillennialist. I'm a postmillennialist. I, I, I believe in this. I believe in that. Notice Paul here says words, not ideas. In other words, they're down in the weeds. They've missed the main things. We say this often, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. How do I know what I need to think? Well, it's the plain main meaning of the text. Look, if, you, if you're coming at us with, you know, well, what about this one little preposition here? What do you think about that? I don't know what I think about that, but I do know kind of got the main idea here, right? And that ought to give you confidence, brothers and sisters. You don't need to have some book to unlock the secret meaning of the scriptures. You don't need to have a Ph.D. You don't need to have a, 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 a master's of divinity. You don't need to have seminary. You don't need to have a lifetime. You just need to have the Holy Spirit and the word. That's what you need. You don't need pastors to give you some secret meaning. We Look, we ain't got, we don't have it. We have the same thing you have. Quarrels about words. An addiction of wanting to, to fight over the small things. We often, we often talk about theological triage. What that means is, is that there are essentials of the faith. You remember what I just said about the gospel? That's essential. You get the gospel wrong, you get everything else wrong. Well, friends, there are, there are theological discussions that Christians have been having for 2,000 years. There are things that Christians, frankly, just can't agree on. All right? But they are not primary things. They are often secondary and third-level third level issues. We use the word triage. What does that mean? Well, in a mass casualty incident, first responders will triage victims. They will go to and they will assess, all right, who, who, who are the most sick? Who are the ones that, that need medical attention? Who are the ones that just need a Band-Aid? Well, well, we'll put all the ones that just need kind of a Band-Aid over in one corner. We'll put all those that you know, need some real serious medical attention in the other corner. Which ones do you think they're going to give their attention to? Well, not the ones that need the Band-Aids, right? They're okay. They'll, they'll live. They'll live for the next hour or two or three or four or, or more. They're going to focus on it. And it's the same thing. In doctrine, we want to think about, well, what is, what is essential? What is clear? What is it that Christians have historically believed? And, and those are the doctrines of God about who God is, who we are, about how we come to know God through saving faith in Christ, about, about faith. And well, then we begin to move down on well, what makes a Christian. What are Christians to believe about a church? What is a church? Who are the church leaders? How do we practice the Lord's Supper? How do we practice baptism? Well, now we've moved into another level of triage. Well, what about matters of alcohol? What about matters of entertainment? What about matters of eschatology, end times, rapture, no rapture? What do we do with those? Although now we're way down here in a third level kind of issue. You see, so often as Christians, we're tempted to take those third level and make them primary. And we begin to divide over those issues. You're going to say, hey, if you don't agree with me on, on this particular doctrine about alcohol, then we can't be friends. Or if you and I disagree on matters about Lord's Supper and baptism, we can't be friends. See, as Christians, we need to understand that, that we are united with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are going to disagree on these smaller matters. But what unites us is much stronger. Paul goes on to say that these false teachers are not only empty on knowledge and love a good theological fight. But look here at verse 4 again. He says they love to stir up trouble. Which produce. In other words, their unhealthy cravings for a good fight produces what? Envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion and constant friction among people. In other words, it doesn't bring about good, does it? Paul lists a whole list of, of really uh, evil things there, doesn't he? Envy. Wanting to have what someone else has. And again, remember, the larger context is riches, right? Wanting to have the riches of this world. Man, if I just had more money, I'd be happy. Dissension. 
So I just described disagreement over finer doctrinal matters. Slander. Oh, friend, if you want to see that, just go to Twitter and look up some SBC pastors and slander over third level theological issues. Slander. Evil suspicions. Always thinking that someone is wrong and that you're right. Constant friction. In other words, this sort of consistent like beating of the drum of friction. This sort of uh, desire just to constantly be at battle with others. Constantly be at battle with those around you. Animosity, isn't it? Notice then how he describes them. Those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. What a, what a picture, isn't it? Depraved in mind. This aspect of being wretched, unregenerate. And deprived of the truth. This is, this is a sad lot, isn't it? And so when, when false teaching spreads, who does it affect but those who need the gospel? Right? It, it, it calcifies men and women around them uh, from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why false teaching must be dealt with. As Paul would write to Titus. He says this to Titus. He says they, that is the false teachers, must be silenced. They must be. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach church we ought to deal with false teaching we cannot just kind of brush it off and say well joel has a smiling face up there when he preaches about his his happy life not at all we need to understand that that kind of thinking that kind of theology of prosperity will lead to as we'll see utter destruction St. John of the Cross defines envy best when he says, As far as envy is concerned, many experience displeasure when they see others in possession of spiritual goods. They feel sensibly hurt because others surpass them on this road, and they resent it when others are praised. You see, false teachers have a, an inability to become godly because they aren't indwelt with the, the same spirit we are. And so there's this envy that's produced. Man, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could. And envy ensues. Well, Paul concludes here by saying that, listen, these false teachers are easy to identify because they are motivated by something. Look here at the end of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There it is. You see, greed had led them to look to make a profit off the gospel. They, they thought, hey, look, we're going to make some money off this. Hey, you want to be more holy? You want to be more godly? You want to grow in your faith? You want to be able to read your Bible better? Well, here, for $9.99, for the low, low price of $9.99, you can become more godly. Hey, there, <laughs> I kid you not, right? There are... There are folks out there today that for the low, low price, they can make Pastor Rod a better pastor. He can make me a better pastor. If I just pay them $10 a month, I can become a better pastor. I get these ads on Facebook. Look, my phone's probably listening to me now, and I'm going to see these ads this afternoon on Facebook about how, I, you know, if I just spent $2,000, I'll, I'll have, you know, access to all this, this information, be able to reach more people for Jesus. Friend, it, 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 these organizations, these ministries are motivated in order to make a quick buck off of you because you desire to grow in faith. You see, Peter warned his, the churches he wrote to in Asia Minor, he says that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Look, they always overpromise and underdeliver. I guarantee you. They will overpromise just for a little seed money. Friend, if you just send us a little seed money, just send us that, that $1, that offering of faith. You send that seed money, and I, I claim it in the name of Jesus right now. That's what these false teachers will tell you. And it's a lie. While they live in their multi-million dollar mansions and drive multi-million dollar planes, your seed money isn't growing. And your faith, friend, 
is diminishing. Because you believe that God is cheating you when in reality it is these false teachers who are. John Stott, reflecting on this passage, identifies three questions that we ought to ask to determine whether or not one is a true or false teacher. And I like these questions, so I bring them to you. Is their teaching compatible with the apostolic faith that is in the New Testament? In other words, be like the Bereans. Open your Bible and read it. Test everything as Paul writes to the church in Philippi and hold on to what is good. Secondly, Stott says, does it tend to unite or divide the church? Oh, that's a good one. There's some doctrines out there that, that uh, I even affirm that folk, folks use it to divide. Does it divide or does it unite the church? Thirdly, Stott says, does it promote godliness with contentment or does it promote covetousness? Those are good questions. Friends, as we reflect on these false teachers and this temptation to sort of get rich on religion, the temptation to turn godliness and the gospel into material gain. Friends, you realize that, that when you follow someone who's tempting you to, to get rich on religion, that you yourself will turn and tempt others to do the same? That, that that kind of false doctrine is perpetual? Friend, maybe this morning you're not really facing the temptation of false teaching. But maybe you like a good theological fight. Do these words describe someone like you? Someone has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words? Taking those third level issues and make them primary in the lives of others. What, what, what we could describe is binding the conscience of others. We want to bind consciences where doctrine is clear. And leave it to conscience where doctrine is unclear. Our statement, you want to say, okay, well, what are, what are you talking about, Pastor Chris? Well, our statement of faith. Uh, is one of those statements that seeks to bind your conscience where we think the Bible is very, very clear and leave to your conscience matters that are not. I've mentioned in times theology a number of times. I'll mention it again. Our statement of faith does not bind your conscience on certain matters of in times theology. But it does bind you on things that are very clear about the second coming of Christ. Namely, Jesus is coming again literally. All right? The Bible's pretty clear about that. And Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is pretty clear about that. But we could debate and we could have disagreement. Even Pastor Rod and I have disagreement on some of the finer details of life. I'll tell you this little joke because y'all love Pastor Scott so much and he won't mind. Uh, <laughs> someone asked Pastor Rod one, or Pastor, Pastor Scott uh, one, uh, recently, hey, does uh, Pastor Chris have a gambling problem? And, uh, and he, re he responded, as only he can, uh, yeah, he does. And uh, he likes to gamble on his uh, eschatology, on his end-time theology. He's gambling because he don't believe in the rapture. And, uh, he's just, and he was joking and everything. But it's true, right? Uh, I don't gamble. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's a, it was a sweet reminder that, look, we can disagree about small matters that in the end, uh, when Jesus comes, right, we look through a glass dimly lit, brothers and sisters. We know in part, and we that's it. But the parts we know, well, we can depend our eternal souls on. Well, Paul goes on to say that, listen, I want you to, to use the gospel as a means of gains. He kind of, he turns it, doesn't he? Look here at verse 6. He, he says, look, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6, but godliness is of great gain, isn't it? He says, it is a good gain. Use it for gain. Not for material gain, but for spiritual gain. Look at what he says here in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Notice he, compare, he compounds godliness with something else. Not godliness in godliness for godliness sake, but godliness with contentment. In other words, if you're pursuing to get rich, the remedy is contentment. To be content, he says. And so Paul here shifts the argument back on these false teachers by saying uh, to Timothy and to the church, look, we ought to seek to get rich on godliness. In about a number of weeks, I'm going to preach this uh, a sermon here at the end of this letter where I titled it, Get Rich, Get Rich Now. And that's what he's doing. He's setting up, he's forwarding this argument that he's going to conclude the letter with. He says, get rich now on godliness. But not get rich material. Get rich physically, or physically, but spiritually. Uh, Paul here says that there is a, a great gain in having both godliness and contentment. Well, how does he support this idea? Look what he writes, verse 7. Here's a support. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Uh, to, to sort of hearken on Job's words, right? When, when God met Job, with that tremendous trial in his life, and Job lost everything. Richest man in the world, no joke, richest man in the world was Job. In an instant, in a moment, he woke up in the morning, he was the richest man in the world. He went to bed that night, the poorest man in the world. Woke up with everything, went to sleep with nothing. And Job says this as he reflects upon his day. You thought you had a bad day. Job one twenty one. he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. You want to you meet this world with a radical gospel that it will not be able to swallow? You want to meet a world driven by materialism and, and, and physical possessions? Remind them of this truth. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You can be the richest person in the world, and at the end of the day, you've got nothing when you die. A number of commentaries had this little, uh, little interesting line, and, and nobody quite knew who it came from. Someone once asked a rich man's family at his funeral, what did this man leave behind? And this individual responded quite quickly. He left it all behind. And that's the truth. When you die, when I die, we leave it all behind. Can't take a thing with us. Yet that's not how we often live, is it? We live as if, all this stuff comes with us. But friend, Paul says the only thing that comes with you is your godliness. You see, we want to live as if eternity starts now. This is why we avoid the language of the afterlife. That is a Darwinian understanding, friend. If you have been born again, the, the, you are a new creation of Christ today. You are new today. Eternity's already begun. You, you, you understand that when you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that everything you do now, you carry with you into eternity. You don't carry the clothes on your back, but you carry your spirit. The spirit that now lives in you will live forever. You shall never die, the, the gospel says. And so John Stott helpfully reminds us again, that possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. What an image. That our possessions is just luggage that we carry with us through life. And he says this, I love this. They are not stuff of eternity. It would be sensibly wise, therefore, to travel light. Isn't that a reminder? Man, you're friend, you are carrying around a whole bunch of junk that ain't going with you. Why do you care so much about it? Friend, we ought to learn to be content in this life by remembering that all these things shall pass away. But your life will live forever. 
Paul goes on to say, not only do we not take things with us, look there in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, Paul here is not advocating, I do not believe, because there were and there are Christians that have an abundance of material possessions. We could describe them as rich Christians. There are poor Christians and rich Christians. There are, you know, middle class Christians. There, there, there's a whole host of them, all right? So, so Paul is not saying that if you have material possessions that you are, are, are unable to go to heaven. That, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, is that we ought to learn to be content with the basic necessities of life. And I've met a lot of godly men and women who have a lot of things of this world, and they'll tell you, remember, I just, they're godly, and they'll tell you, look, if all these things went away, we'll be all right. And that's the kind of attitude we have, we ought to have, that we ought to be satisfied. We ought to differentiate in our lives the difference between need and want. Amen? What we really need and what we really want, right? We ought to teach our kids that, too, because that's why they get themselves in all that problem with debt, because they confuse those ideas between want and need. You don't need that. You might want that, but you don't need that. We ought to understand the difference between those. Oh, the Bible is just filled with advice centered around material possessions because so many have fallen into their trap. Consider Psalm 37, verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. Amen. Or Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God says, I will, let, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or, of course, that passage we heard well in Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus teaching us uh, there on the Sermon on the Mount to, 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 to remember that everything we have comes from God. Do you understand what happens? Why this, is, why this is such a big deal? You see, when we complain, when we are without, we are saying that God has failed to meet our basic needs. You're saying that God is a failure when you desire riches here on earth. And Paul concludes here in these last two verses by encouraging them to pursue righteousness in, in a warning. He warns the poor who lust for more in verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You, you see, he said the word into how many times there? <laughs> Three times? Four times? Into temptation, into a snare, into senseless, into ruin and destruction. It, it's sort of a perpetual falling down the stairs. It is continually falling to the bottom. It's an endless cycle. It will never satisfy. Because it's not meant to satisfy. The ultimate bottom of a love for money, a desire for riches, is ruin and destruction. Look at the picture he paints. A snare, senseless and harmful desires? Well, this is not how they make those lottery commercials look. Or when someone wins the jackpot down at the casino. Or when someone's sailing on their half a million dollar yacht. This is not how the culture is going to paint the picture of those who have material riches here on earth. But this is how godly people and gospel people understand that when you go down this road, it only ends in destruction. From the desire for money has ruined a lot of good people. And it will destroy your life. It is a horse you can't get off of. And it will ride you until the end. The love of money not only will destroy us. It will lead us. Look here at verse 10. Deeper into sin. For the love of money, he says, is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Now, notice here, Paul doesn't say that the love of money is the root of all evil or of evil, but that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, to be clear, again, I want to make clear here that money is not inherently evil, right? No more than guns kill people, all right? So the money in your wallet ain't going to kill you, all right? It ain't going to make you sin. It's the love of money, the love of it, the desire to have it and to hold it and to keep it and, and put it under your mattress or whatever you do with it or spend it or make yourself feel better with it. It is a root of all kinds of evils. In other words, it leads into, it leads into a plethora of evil. You will never get enough of it. Oh, how many folks do you know in your life who go from job to job, climbing the corporate ladder, getting this house, getting that thing, just constantly more and more and more, and they look exhausted and tired and wore out. Why? Because, as Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't. You can't serve two masters. And and as I taught y'all in that Sermon on the Mount when we taught through that, What's Jesus saying when he says you can't serve two masters? Friend, you think you work for your money? When you love money, your money, is, you actually work. You're your, your money is your slave. And you're a slave of it. It is through this craving, Paul says, that some have shipwrecked their faith, have wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ultimately, the love of money ends in only one place, the destruction of your soul. It's bad enough to ruin your life. It's bad enough to to lead yourself deeper into sin. But Paul says, well, here's ultimately what happens when you lust for more money. You kill your soul. And the picture he paints here is one who's pierced themselves with many pangs, thorns. A gruesome picture of what ultimately results when one gives themselves over to more. Friend, as Christians, we want to pursue godliness with contentment. We want to remind ourselves that worldly treasures will never satisfy. That tangible is not meant to meet your deepest needs. As we heard earlier from Tripp, God has created these things for you to worship God, not to be worshipped. God has given you these gifts so that you might honor and worship Him. And we ought to be reminded and warned that the love of money will keep you from eternal life with Jesus. We ought to reflect about how we feel about money. Seek to pray that the Spirit would grow our hearts more and more content in this life. In these ways, as we seek to be content, we fight against the temptations and the alluring desires for the riches in this life only. Let us store up treasures in heaven where moth and thieves do not come in and destroy and where we will be able to enjoy from this time forward and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we pray this for your glory that you might affect us in a way where we seek to live content in this life. Seek to pursue the riches of heaven and not the fleeting pleasures of life in this world. Help us, we pray, for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.